It's a very great privilege for us today to welcome Professor John Mackay to this meeting of the Christian Institute. His theme is, uh, I think we would agree, a much neglected one today, the Old Testament law and its significance. Uh, as you will see from the program and the information about this day conference, John Mackay has been a free church minister at Easter Ross and has for the past nine years been Professor of Old Testament at the Free Church College in Edinburgh. So uh, I don't want to take up any more time. I want to say welcome again to Professor Mackay and we very much look forward to what you have to say to us today. Well, thank you for that introduction. It's nice to be back down in these parts, seeing some faces I know from the past and I trust I'll get to know more of you later on today. There was just one thing that was lacking about the introduction, you know. It struck me as he was speaking, saying colleague of Professor McLeod. It's so much more encouraging when people say younger colleague of <laughs> Professor McLeod. <clears throat> and it's true as well. The theme, the Old Testament law and its significance. We're considering questions about how should we live. What standards should the Christian adopt personally? What standards should the Christian advocate for the community as a whole? Indeed, at some levels the question is, should the Christian be concerned with moral or ethical recommendations for the non-Christian community? These are very big questions. And they're ones that have to be faced generation after generation. But I think they're particularly acute today in our own situation where our nation has no real Christian commitment at all. There has been a national consensus in the past and it was explicitly based on Christian values. Indeed, it was significantly molded by evangelical Christianity. But those days have gone. Over the last century, values have been eroded. The consensus that once existed no longer exists. And I want to argue today that it is the duty of the church. It's one significant aspect of Christian witness to speak to the moral needs, the moral dilemmas of our day. But I've left that to the end. That's really what we're going to come at in the final session this afternoon. Because before the church, before we as Christians can address others, we need, first of all, to speak to ourselves. And the weakness of Christian witness has often arisen because of lack of inner agreement on the basic issues. Not that I'm going perhaps to be able to establish that agreement in what I've got to say today. I expect there will be lots of issues that we'll disagree on. But I, I want to present a particular approach to the law, to the law as found in the Old Testament, to the law as brought into the New Testament, in such a way that even if you're disagreeing with me, I hope it will clarify and heighten your perception of what is being said in Scripture. I'm wanting to argue that the standards that the Christian 
adopts for himself or herself and promotes for others have to be specifically divine standards derived from Scripture. We may be able to present apologetic arguments regarding them to others. We, we may be able to say, well, isn't this reasonable? Doesn't this seem right? Doesn't this seem fair? We may be able to argue for our case at that level and in that way. And that will occur because God's standards are not unnatural or unreasonable. They are the standards of the God who has created man, who knows our condition and our nature far better than any human understanding. And he has presented his word, his law, in a way that matches precisely the needs of man made in the image of God. But ultimately, we're not arguing for what's reasonable. We're arguing for what is divinely given. And I hope that I can take that as an uh, agreed basis for our exploration today, that we are arguing primarily on the basis of what is divinely revealed. Of course, that doesn't get you very far, because you then have to ask the question, well, what is it that's been divinely revealed? Accepting the authority of God's word, or what is it that it is being said to us? And my answer to that is in two parts. What has been given to directors is God's law. That is the first part. And the second part is that that law is now given to us in Christ. The second aspect we'll take up later on this morning. Just now, I want to focus on the first. What has been given to us by God to direct us? It is God's law, the ethical standards presented in his word. And that, of course, brings us to consider the matter of Old Testament law. Now, once you start to talk about law, you hit two problems. I suppose the first is that law suggests to us authority, restriction, imposition, and all those sorts of things run contrary to the spirit and ethos of our own day and generation. Perhaps it springs from a distorted view of democracy, uh, the, the equality of each citizen. There's very much the idea running throughout our civilization that each has the right to do his own thing without being perhaps very much concerned about the situation of others. There is an anti-authoritarian bias in the general public standards of our day, the general public behavior of our day. And ultimately, I suppose, that rejection of authority stems from a rejection of God in the first place. It's an expression of man's corrupt nature that he wants to claim sovereignty, that he wants to claim autonomy for himself. It goes back to the fall. That was what Adam was seeking to do. I'll make up my own mind as to how I am going to live. What's right for me is what I decide is what should be done. I'm not proposing to argue the case for God's authority to demand what he wants from his church. I'm going to take that as for granted. 
But I'm mentioning this just now because we have to we have to take care that we don't fall into or be overly influenced by the, the, the prevailing thought patterns of our day. Uh, we're very much of our own day and age. Uh, we, we're subject to the pressures and the influences that come at us from every side. Uh, whenever you read a newspaper, whenever you listen to a discussion on television, uh, there are values being presented. There is an approach to living coming across. And so very often uh, that is anti-authority. It is anti-Christian. Uh, we've got to realize that talking about law, talking about authority structures in living, is not something that's to be rejected out of hand. It is something that is very much not just implicit in God's word, but explicitly there. But looking at the matter in a more Christian context, it's probably not the use of the word law that causes an uncomfortable feeling. It's Old Testament law that causes people to be uncomfortable. Because if law has a bad press, generally speaking, the Old Testament is frequently looked upon as being very gloomy, very dark, and perhaps only of marginal relevance to today. In the early church, it was the the, the heretic Marcion who decided that the God of the Old Testament wasn't really the God of the New Testament, and who emended his canon accordingly, chopped off the whole of the Old Testament and quite a substantial part of the New Testament, uh, to conform to his ideas of what God was like. We perhaps don't do that so explicitly in evangelical circles, uh, but there's a tendency towards being virtually Marcionite with parts of the Old Testament. All right, there's the book of Psalms, and there are messianic prophecies to be found now and again, uh, but uh, perhaps I feel it more teaching Old Testament so much. There's so much of it that we frequently downgrade, treat as being on a second level of revelation. But as we saw in the passage that was read when we started this morning, that attitude of downgrading the Old Testament is challenged, even from within the parts of the Old Testament we look to. There was Psalm 19, the law of the Lord is perfect, the testimony of the Lord is sure. The statutes of the Lord are right. The commandment of the Lord is pure. Or again, there's Psalm 119, uh, an extended proclamation of the benefits and the wonder of the law. How I love your law. I meditate on it all day long. Your statutes are wonderful. I open my mouth and pant, longing for your commands. a very positive view about the Old Testament law. There are difficulties relating it to the New Testament treatment of the law, but we'll come to that later. But looking specifically at the Old Testament, the law is something that is the prized possession of God's people. It's sometimes been suggested that one of the reasons why we have a different viewpoint, perhaps, about law is a matter of translation. The Hebrew word for law, Torah, was rendered into Greek by a word nomos, and that corresponds very closely to the English word law, because we think of law in the first place as regulations, 
imposed by a competent authority, backed up by some sanction or other. The law is imposed on a subject. If you break the law, there is a penalty. We think of law very much in terms of law code, state law. And it's argued that the Hebrew idea of law, Torah, is different. The argument, I think, can be presented, and is often presented in too drastic a fashion. Law is not an utter mistranslation for Torah. Torah can be used to refer to regulations with attached penalties. But it refers to more than that. It's a wider term. The basic conception is instruction rather than rule. The Old Testament law is more than a law code in the modern sense. It is a presentation of instruction for living. And more closely defined, it is the presentation of the standards of covenant living. And that's where I think we introduce the key to understanding Old Testament law. The law does not stand on its own. The law, the Torah, is embedded within the covenant. And that perception is essential, in my view, to answering not just what Old Testament law means, but also how the Christian nowadays should use the law. Covenant. Have we gone from bad to worse? I don't know. We now know a lot more about covenant than was known a hundred years ago, perhaps 70 years ago, because of the advances of archaeology. We know what it meant, what it would have signified to Israel of old when God was first pleased to use covenant to present himself and his law, his instruction to his people. Covenant is to be understood against a particular background that we now know about to a much greater extent from the ancient Near East. There are records of the way city-states made treaties between each other stretching way back to 3000 BC, particularly in Mesopotamia. And these treaty arrangements form the background to understanding biblical covenant. For instance, over the centuries there developed fairly fixed forms, fairly fixed stereotypes for drawing up these treaties. In one particular type of treaty between an overlord and a vassal, between a, a nation, a, an emperor who had conquered another nation, the, the treaties fell into to fairly fixed parts. They always began with a preamble identifying the overlord. And then there was a piece of history, the historical prologue it's technically called, talking about the relationship, the past relationship, between the overlord and his vassal, mentioning especially the favors, the, the um, benefits the overlord had bestowed on his vassal. 
And then there were the stipulations, uh, whereby the overlord laid down the conduct he expected in the future uh, from the people he was ruling over. These treaties then went on to talk about the text of the treaty being deposited in a certain place and being read regularly in public. There would then be a list of divine witnesses to the treaty and there would be blessings invoked upon the vassal if he obeyed and curses if he broke the stipulations of the covenant. This was part of the everyday information that would have been immediately accessible uh, to the ordinary person of Moses' day. And God was pleased to use that treaty form to teach Israel about their relationship to him. Can I just, perhaps as a little aside there, say that uh, I'm not totally convinced in my own mind that it's always the case that we have to think of this as God using um, something that was essentially secular, something that was really very heathen in and of itself. The, the treaties of Mesopotamia, when they, they were deposited, they were deposited in the, the temple of the heathen gods. The blessings and the curses were those coming from pagan deities. I'm very much inclined to accept the, the parameters of biblical history. I'm persuaded myself that if we had sufficient data, uh, we'd be able to show that the secular practice uh, is a degenerate form derived from the original divine example. Uh, I think that we, the basic first covenant is in fact God's covenant with Noah. And it's against that background of God uh, laying down the stipulations for behavior of his people that the heathen practice developed. But I'm not insisting on that. That's just a sort of background context. At the time, Israel came out of Egypt. In terms of the information and knowledge that was available to them at that particular time, God was pleased to use covenant, this ancient form of treaty making, to teach his people who they were and how they were to live before him. You see, if I asked you what goes into a modern treaty between states, I doubt if you'd know. I certainly don't. I've never read one. I've never seen one. I've seen them, those marvellous round blotters they use when they, they blot the signatures when these official documents are signed, but I've never even in the newspapers seen a, the whole text of one of these uh, international documents. I, I wouldn't know what they were like. That wasn't the case in the ancient world. Uh, in the list of things that were to be done there, you notice there was the regular public reading of them. This is something that would have occurred even in Egypt. Uh, the, the, there was a much greater awareness of the, the form of the composition of such treaties in the ancient world than there is uh, now. It's rather like the, the situation uh, if you get a letter. Letters are really very artificial things, you know. But in this, in our civilization, we 
strangely enough, go to the end of the letter to find out who's sending it, and we expect certain pieces of information to come in certain places. Uh, we know where the dear so-and-so goes, and we know where the yours faithful is. Nothing like the way Paul wrote them. And Paul was much more logical. He began by telling you, I'm Paul, and I'm writing to you. Uh, we say, hello, you are. <laughs> now, when God was using the treaty, the covenant, the form, to teach his people, it was something they were responding to. It was something that was giving them insight. They, they knew they would recognize and respond. This is a treaty. This is a covenant. But this is the strange thing, you see. Covenants were in politics. Why is it that God uses this political model to teach his people about himself? And what's significant for our present purpose today is the basic motivation of the covenant arrangement. There was one thing above all else that the emperors, that the suzerains, the overlords of the ancient world demanded of their subject people. And that was loyalty to themselves. Of course, it's not just in the ancient world. It was still very much the case in authoritarian, totalitarian regimes. The one thing you've got to require of people is that they don't go against the wishes of the regime. But this command for loyalty, exclusive loyalty, is why covenant could become a religious metaphor for Israel in a way that was unique in the ancient world. All the other nations were polytheistic. All the other nations had pantheons of gods. It is only within the bounds of Israel that this metaphor could work of God coming and saying, this is the way I want you to think about your relationship with me. It is an exclusive relationship. As exclusive as the relationship that the kings of the earth demand of subject peoples in their empire. So there's the, the, the first element of covenant. Covenant was saying to Israel, it's an exclusive relationship. But it was more than that. The suzerains, the overlords, grounded their demand for conformity to their stipulations in their past benefactions to their vassals. They came and they said, uh, I have defended you from such a people who were invading you. Now obey me. Quite often it involved a certain rewriting of history. It's a mark of political dexterity to present the message, be grateful I conquered you. <laughs> but in a very real sense, this is why the Lord used covenant. He was demanding obedience of Israel because of what he'd done for them. He was coming and saying to them, I am the God who's delivered you from Egypt. And the magnitude of that deliverance didn't require the talents of a political copywriter to, to massage it into an appropriate form. It was real. It was evident. It was the basis of what God was saying to his people.
Now let us come to Scripture, which is a good place to go to, and look at Exodus 19. Here's Israel having experienced the Exodus, coming with a knowledge of the, the way things were done in their own day, coming with an awareness of, of what was going on, and they've come to Sinai. And Moses, in verse 3, goes up the mountain to God and has this message given. Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the sons of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you in eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. Now notice the inner dynamic of that. First of all, what the law overlord has done for them. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I brought you. On eagles' wings, a metaphor of care, of protection, I brought you to myself. There's first of all the salvation, deliverance given to this people by the Lord. On that basis, God demands covenant obedience from the people. Now then, if you will obey my voice and keep my covenant. The Lord's covenant structures the obedience of a saved people. The law doesn't come to them so that they may gain salvation for themselves. Their salvation's already effected. It's taken place as a result of the, the gracious intervention and sovereign determination of the overlord. That's emphasized time and again. You'll find it also in, in Deuteronomy 7. The Lord didn't set his love on you or choose you because you were greater in number than any other people. The Lord loved you because of the oath he'd sworn to your forefathers and brought you by a mighty hand. So the Lord, the God of salvation, gives his law in covenant form so that he can structure the response of his people in a way that's suitable to what he wants. Salvation precedes law in terms of the covenant structure. The, the exodus it comes before Sinai. And it's only through the path of covenant obedience that the saved people enter into the fullness of their inheritance, enter into the, the total enjoyment of a, what God has saved them for. So the basic covenant structure is, first of all, in terms of the authority of the overlord, and then if, with a dynamic that involves the overlord's action, a structured response of gratitude leading to full enjoyment of the blessings provided by the overlord. And it's the same thing that can be seen in miniature in the introduction to the Ten Commandments. 
uh, Exodus 20 and verse 2 there is, is very much a covenant introduction. The, it's always been the case that uh, the introduction, the introductory words of the Ten Commandments have been kept with them in Christian tradition. Uh, and this was a, a very sound tradition because they are integral to understanding uh, the law that follows. I am the Lord your God. There's identification of the overlord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. That is what I've done for you. This, that encapsulates the essence of the first two items of the treaty form. The overlord being identified and a summary of the past relationship between him and the vassal. And that does two things to the law that's then presented. It first of all brings it into the area of personal relationships. This law, the Old Testament law, is given to structure the gratitude of the one who has already bestowed upon him blessing. I remember the, the late Professor John Murray of, of Westminster in the States used to, to express this very concisely and I must confess I heard him saying it a lot in preaching in, the, in Scotland before I even understood what he was saying. But it's, um, love is not the excogitation of its own norm. <laughs> it sums it up precisely. It, it, but it takes a while to, to work out what it's saying. Uh, but I, I can still remember that grand old man saying it, particularly with knees bent and in his own particular voice. Love is not the excogitation of its own norm. What does it mean? Well, it's expected that those who were saved would want to show gratitude towards their benefactor. The attraction of love would show itself by desiring to please the one who's loved. But love doesn't know of itself what to do to please the one loved. Love has to be informed before it can act. Love is not able to excogitate, to work out the standard of its own behavior. Love is an impulsive force. It's a motivating force. But it needs to be structured. Can I put it in terms of a, a trivial example? There used to be an advert on television. Uh, they still be on, for all I know where a man would perform all sorts of daring exploits, skiing down impossible slopes, <laughs> overcoming obstacles, so as to present a box of chocolates, <laughs> all because the lady loves milk tray. Now you can say there's a grand expression of devotion, of love. Look at what he's done. Look at the odds he's surmounted. But it doesn't get you very far if the lady loves black magic. <laughs> His love would be nonetheless real. The motivating force would still have been impelling his life. But until he is informed about the preferences of the loved one, it couldn't express itself appropriately in a way that the loved one would uh, not only be able to say what extravagant effort you've gone to to do this for me, but, oh, I really like those. 
And so God comes to his people. He comes as their covenant overlord. He says, look at what I've done for you. I've saved you. And then he says, now I have to tell you how to behave so that the gratitude that you must be feeling towards me can be channeled appropriately. Love doesn't excogitate its own norm. The love of God's people comes by God telling them how to live. And the other thing is that this instruction is presented categorically, apodictically, to use the more technical word. The law that follows in Exodus 20 is, You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. Now that is not law as we'd ordinarily expect it. The sort of law we'd ordinarily expect is found there at the beginning of chapter 21. Uh, say in verses 1 and 2, If you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve for six years, but on the seventh he shall go out free. Or again at, at verse say 16, He who kidnaps a man, whether he sells him or he is found in his possession, shall surely be put to death. That's the sort of case law, casuistic law we expect. If somebody does this, then this is the penalty. But the whole structure of the basic covenant law is quite different. It doesn't come saying, here's the penalty. It just comes and says, you shall not. Now that actually corresponds to the way um, people actually spoke in the ancient world. When kings drew up law codes... They use the form, if somebody steals, then they shall do, then this and this penalty shall be invoked. But when they made treaties, the, the argumentation was quite different. It wasn't generally in terms of penalty, legally binding penalty. It was a problem of actually administering um, ancient empires. Think of the problems of an ancient emperor. Uh, he has just conquered a people many hundreds of miles away. His army is not going to be able to stay there He's very long. Armies in the ancient world, there wasn't a very large standing army. They were gathered for each campaign. And he had the problem of uh, trying to keep control of this area he just conquered. There were no telephones, no modern communications. So he, as it were, came to the people when he made the treaty with them and says, look, you're now honor-bound to do these sorts of things that I want. He didn't bother saying, if you don't do them, uh, you'll have to pay me a fine. What he did was he said, if you don't do them, may the gods come and bring all sorts of curses on you. So when in making covenant, it was he, they, they were saying, look what good we've brought you. We've conquered you. Um, now live this way. God's coming to his people and saying, look, I've saved you. Now live in this way that I want you to live. He comes and it's the language that's based on inner attraction and devotion. The law is designed as a revelation of love. No sooner had Moses restated the Decalogue in Deuteronomy, but he goes on and says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. It's not jumping to a different subject. It's really part of the same package. 
So then, there's this basic sequence. First salvation, then obedience motivated by love, and then enjoyment of the blessings of salvation. And the blessings of salvation are very frequently presented in the Old Testament in terms of the word life. Uh, Leviticus 18.5, So you shall keep my statutes and my judgments, by which a man may live if he does them. I am the Lord. It's not the law offering life, uh, eternal life, Salvation by works. It's rather the law offering continued enjoyment of blessing, living in the land of promise, if there is obedience to the demands of the overlord. You can see that summed up very well in the end of Deuteronomy in chapter 30. See, I set before you today life and prosperity and death and adversity. Deuteronomy 30, 15 to 20. If you choose life, then they to obey, for this is your life and the length of your days, that you may live in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abram, Isaac, and Jacob, to give them. So we have the basic structure, salvation, stipulation, enjoyment. We're obviously wanting to focus on the stipulations. And as you read the Old Testament, I'm assuming, <laughs> I'm assuming you have actually at some stage read most of the Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. It's hard going. It's hard going at times, particularly, uh, I think, first few chapters of Numbers, the, the census. It, uh, it can be quite, quite uh, <clears throat> you have to grit your teeth at times, I grant. But if you read through it, one of the features that strikes immediately is that the stipulations of the covenant cover every aspect of Israel's life. How they were to be ruled, how justice was to be executed in the land, the way they were to worship, what they were to wear, what they were to eat, how they were to farm, how they were to hold property, what they were to do in war, what they were to do with a bird's nest if they found it while they were walking along the road. It's all in there. The whole scope of their living came within the ambit of the Torah, the this instruction of their divine overlord. He wanted them to be his special people. He had saved them so that they could perform a special function for him, and he structures the whole of, his, of their living. And the law was undoubtedly a whole. Just as you couldn't say in ordinary political sphere, well, you're my overlord, I'll accept laws 1, 3, and 9, but the others uh, I'm not really worried about. That's rather like Britain's attitude towards the common market. We'll accept 1, 3, and 9, but the others, that's different. This is in terms of the emperor who's just conquered you, what he says goes. And in terms of the divine overlord, Israel couldn't say, well, we'll have this, that, and the other, but we'll not worry about the rest. Well, they shouldn't have done that. They, they did, in fact. That's how they lived. That's how things went wrong. But the law, the stipulations came as a package. You couldn't opt out of certain aspects of covenantal obedience. All had been commanded by the king. And sometimes matters of diverse significance are brought together in a way that makes us wonder about their inner connection. 
For instance, uh, one of the, the best ones is, is Leviticus 19, verses 18 and 19. You shall not take vengeance, nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then the next verse, you shall not breed together two kinds of cattle. You shall not sow your field with two kinds of seed or wear a garment with two kinds of material mixed together. Seems incongruous, but it's bringing very much to the forefront the fact that every aspect of their living was under the scrutiny, under the mandate of the divine overlord. Now we come to look at the Old Testament. We come not as Israel at Sinai, but as New Testament believers. And the fact that the law was one for Israel doesn't prevent us from identifying different categories of Old Testament law. When we do this, we're not saying that ancient Israel did it. In fact, I'm saying ancient Israel shouldn't have done it. What I'm saying is that in analyzing what was going on at Sinai, from a Christian viewpoint, then we can say what were the constituent elements of the obligation, or the obligations placed on God's people. And I still use the categories, moral, ceremonial, and judicial They've received a lot of flack in modern discussions. They're frequently derided. But I find them still to be of considerable usefulness. All right, I grant that perhaps more work needs to be done on them, because we can often get into a little bit of circularity in our reasoning. Uh, do we, in fact, first decide what is ceremonial, and on that basis say it no longer applies, or do we come to the law with a fair idea of what we want not to apply and on that basis call it ceremonial so as to get rid of it? But it's still the case that certain areas of what's said we can define fairly clearly objectively. Ceremonial obviously covers the construction of the tabernacle, the offering of sacrifice, the duties of the priesthood. We can take that as a basis all right, it may be more difficult to say why are the food laws ceremonial. That's another matter. But we can start off as, as a, a first approximation, as a working basis. We know what we're talking about when we say ceremonial. In the same way when we talk about judicial law, it's obviously referring to those laws that relate to the civil life of Israel. What to do in cases of theft, what to do in cases of murder, or what to do... Uh, as regards who may marry whom, the, the, uh, which uh, marriage relationships are forbidden. Or we can certainly identify a core that is judicial law. And we use the term moral law to describe certain basic ethical principles. Now that's not to say that the ceremonial law or the judicial law are apart from the moral law. Uh, they're conditioned by it. God didn't impose on his people something that was contrary to his own holiness. May I quote the Westminster Confession of Faith? I'm not quite sure the ecclesiastical constitution I'm addressing, but I like to quote the Westminster Confession of Faith. 
God was pleased to give to the people of Israel, as a church under age, ceremonial laws containing several typical ordinances, partly of worship and partly holding forth diverse instructions of moral duties, all which ceremonial laws are now abrogated under the New Testament. To them also as a body politic he gave sundry judicial laws, which expired together with the state of that people, not obliging any other now further than the general equity thereof may require. The Westminster Confession in chapter 19 is saying the moral law is constant, it remains, and God was pleased to add ceremonial and judicial law to the people of Israel for a specific function at that time. The, it helps us, it's saying that these distinctions help us understand what's going on. Now I'm going to look at the ceremonial and judicial law later on not this this session, the next session, I want to focus just now on the moral law. This is commonly identified as the Ten Commandments. I don't think the matter is quite as simple as that, but I'd like to begin by emphasizing that the Ten Commandments are different. They are in a category of their own. And that's not a category imposed by Christian thinking, it's there in the Old Testament. They stand apart and have special status in the Pentateuch and also in the prophets, but we can't explore that just now. The Ten Commandments were delivered in a special way. They were spoken by the voice of God. The other commandments were communicated through Moses. So the giving of the Ten Commandments there in Exodus 20, is separated off and it's done in a way with thunder and lightning flashes, the sound of trumpet and the mountain smoking. God himself is marking them off as different. There are also ten. I don't know if you go in for scriptural numerics. I normally shy away from them because they seem very fanciful. But I think it's significant that there are Ten commandments, symbolic of completeness, a definite whole. And that's also brought out in, say, Deuteronomy, where the Ten Commandments are given and it's explicitly said in Deuteronomy 5.22, he added nothing more. They alone are written with the finger of God on the two tablets that Moses received directly from God and nothing more is added. And so the ten words, in a special way, sum up the terms of the covenant at Sinai. Indeed, Ten Commandments isn't an Old Testament expression at all. The Old Testament consistently calls them the ten words. And that's where Decalogue comes from. Uh, Ten Commandments is, is an English expression. Uh, So that in a passage like Deuteronomy 4.13, your version may have something like, So he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform. That is the Ten Commandments. It's literally the Ten Words. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone. Deuteronomy 4.13. The Ten Words are the summation, the quintessence, the essence 
of the covenant. And it's the Ten Commandments alone, the tables of stone, that are placed within the ark at the very centre of Israel's worship. So I, I'm no way hesitant, I no way apologise for singling out the Ten Commandments and saying these are specially emphasised in Scripture. They are basic. But it won't do to equate the Ten Commandments simply with the moral law. I'm using the phrase moral law to describe God's demands for ethical action from men, mankind whom he has created. God's demands for ethical action from mankind whom he has created. And it's not, I think, the case that we should simply equate that with the Ten Commandments. I think it's better to say that the Ten Commandments are a particular edition of the moral law. They're a summary, the best summary given in Scripture of the moral law. But I think it helps unravel some knots, some puzzles, if you recognize that they're expressed in a way suitable to the condition of God's people at that time. There are particular elements in them that relate to the time of Moses that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you, is something that's very much related to Israel in the Old Testament. I don't want to open the matter of the, the Sabbath law, but it also, I would say, has to be understood as a particular edition of the moral law for those Israelites. Otherwise, I think to be logical... I would have to turn out to be a Seventh-day Adventist. Uh, the Ten Commandments are a particular edition of the moral law. They express the moral law in a particular existential situation, in a particular time, particular place, facing up to God's people as they were then. And I think that helps us understand not only certain aspects that are in the Ten Commandments, but also enables us to realize that although God entered into covenant with his people through Moses at Sinai, it wasn't the first time that covenant had been used to structure God's relationship with his people. He'd already made covenant uh, with Noah and with Abraham and those they represented, it was also the case that God had required of Abraham obedience. It's not just obedience comes in at Sinai. God had said, walk before me and be blameless to Abraham in Genesis 17.1. It is, of course, at Sinai the case that God gives a far more detailed presentation of the way he wanted the life of his people to be ordered. But there had always been the requirement of obedience. And because there'd always been the requirement of obedience, the moral law doesn't come into existence at Sinai. The moral law has been there uh, as the structure, as, as the requirement of God ever since creation. There are some commentators uh, who show that the Ten Commandments appear in one form or another in the book of Genesis. 
you can see uh, various aspects of, of the uh, each of the Ten Commandments mentioned in Genesis. Uh, I don't want to go, to go through the particular examples. Some are more convincing than others. But at a more general level, moral law has existed ever since man was created. It's a reflection of God's own character. And God himself is unchangeable in the standards. Well, they're not really standards for God in what he is in himself. And he expects that those whom he has created will reflect what he himself is as regards the way they conduct themselves. What's happening at Sinai is that the basic demands of the moral law are now being presented in a different context, the context of salvation. It's not that the basic demands are changed. It's not that God has one set of behavior that he uh, expects uh, from saved people and another set of behavior that he expected uh, from Adam before he fell. The difference is in the motivation that will impel towards obedience, not in the standard, the norm of the obedience that's expected, because the norm of the obedience that's expected is determined by the character of God himself. And I'd like to draw this to a conclusion by saying that that provides us with a cogent case for presenting the moral law to all. The moral law comes as an expression of God the creator. To anticipate a little, it come, it's this aspect of the situation that, that Paul refers to in Romans 2. For when the Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them on the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. Paul's looking there and saying there is still on the conscience, even of the Gentiles, the impress of the moral demands that God expects of his creation. And when conscience works, those demands are there. And it's that residual knowledge in the work of conscience all right, it's erratic, it's fitful, it's imperfect, but it is still testifying to the moral creation order. And we find that used, I would say, even in the Old Testament. When you read, say, the beginning chapters of Amos, you find the prophet sent by God to condemn a whole series of nations. All right, it's building up to the condemnation of Israel and Judah. But the other nations are condemned as well. How can you condemn? They're not being condemned because of ignorance of what God said at Sinai. They are being condemned because of the witness of their own conscience within them, testifying to the moral standards of God's law. When Jonah go, goes to preach at Nineveh and to to bring them to a realization of their, of their sin and of the violence that they're doing to one another. He's not there presenting the fact that at Sinai, 
God said that his people should wear tassels on the corners of their robes. He is there appealing to the, the moral law. The moral law, yes, all right, as summarized in the Ten Commandments, if that's the best summary we have. But it's something that is far more basic, far more fundamental than, no, far more original than um, the creation, than the covenant. It's going back to creation. And that, I think, is the basis still of the church's approach to the Ninevehs of today, who are living their own way, uh, who are still men and women with consciences, who still have uh, a law work within them. Their conscience still works, albeit fitfully and erratically. And when we come and present moral demands to them, we come and we are appealing not to something that we can work out on the basis of our own understanding. I'm not saying that it's, it's something that uh, man's able to say, well, this must be wrong because it doesn't further the, the future of the race. I'm saying we are working it out and saying that is wrong. We urge you to realize that's wrong. And the fundamental theology in our thinking is, It's wrong because it's contrary to what God has demanded, what God the Creator has demanded. It's on that basis uh, that the the Ninevehs, the Assyrias of the ancient world are condemned. And it is still that basis that comes in God's moral law to give us the standard that we would present today in in our day and generation.